Welcome to Hub Headlines. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in The Hub for February 22nd. Up first is Trevor Toome, writing on the importance of building roads in Canada, infrastructure issues, and why we should spend more on our transportation. Federal Environment Minister Stephen Gibo may have erred last week by saying, the federal government will no longer provide funding to expand the road network. If he was serious, that would mark a significant federal policy shift and stall future infrastructure projects nationwide. Reactions were swift. Ontario's Premier Ford was gobsmacked. The minister's attempt to clarify saying federal funding would not support large projects did little to help. I won't pile on. The minister often struggles to clearly articulate key federal policy decisions. But whether serious or not, his comments touch on a critical challenge for Canada. Our transport infrastructure is inadequate, and our productivity suffers as a result. The task of connecting Canadians is vital for our economic health and well-being, as is the task of connecting us with the world. This isn't easy in a country with relatively few major cities spread out over vast distances, but it would be impossible without trucks and major roads. Internally, I estimate roughly three-quarters of everything we trade across provinces is shipped by truck. Internationally, roughly two-thirds of our exports are shipped that way. Rail is important too, of course, mainly for heavy items. Trade allows Canada to maximize its economic advantages but it needs good infrastructure. And at least for trade within Canada, we have a clear and costly problem. Since the early 1980s, interprovincial trade has declined and is now half of international trade. If this was due to individual and business market decisions, it wouldn't be a problem. But several barriers to the free flow of goods and services are at work. Most of those are due to provincial governments having different rules, regulations, standards, and certifications. But another part of the problem is infrastructure and the added costs involved when our road and rail networks fall short. We need more funding, not less, for critical infrastructure. More funding for interprovincial highway capacity. More funding for expanding the national rail networks. More funding for seaways, ports, and airports. More funding for long-distance electricity transmission. More for all of the above. In recent years, we've seen precisely the opposite. Canada's federal, provincial, and local governments spend less on transportation than two-thirds of what the U.S. does as a share of our respective economies. And after rising substantially between 2004 and 2009, our public spending on transportation infrastructure fell by roughly 0.2% of GDP. That may not seem like much, but it means roughly $5 billion less per year for critical infrastructure. To match the U.S., we'd need to spend about $17 billion per year more. Reduced direct federal spending is not the main cause of the decline, to be sure. But since 2018, provincial transportation infrastructure spending is up, while federal spending is down. In 2022, according to the latest data, federal expenditures amounted to just $800 million. And, according to Statistics Canada, 
Most of this investment is negated by an estimated $670 million in depreciation of existing infrastructure. Net federal infrastructure investment is therefore nearly zero. Of course, some provincial spending depends on federal contributions that share in the costs. We have issues there too. First, funding squabbles between governments are frequent. Consider recent disputes over financing improvements on the Chignecto Isthmus between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, despite clearly being an interprovincial project. Similarly, the development of the Ring of Fire in Ontario has faced major obstacles. Second, and perhaps more troublesome, the federal government consistently fails to spend available funds. Last year, for example, of the $1.1 billion available in the National Trade Corridors Fund, meant to help fund roads, railways, and airports, the federal government spent only $219 million. The year before that, there was around $339 million available, but only $233 million was spent. Before that, $463 million available, roughly $165 million spent. In fact, from what I can tell, every single year underspent the available funds considerably. Improving internal trade with more and better infrastructure could boost our lagging productivity. While not cheap, the gains are considerable. To give just a hint of the potential for economic gains, consider improving infrastructure just in Canada's north. My colleague Professor Fellows and I estimate that if the quality of northern Canada's infrastructure simply matched southern Canada's, the present value of future economic gains might be on the order of roughly $100 billion. Expanding transport infrastructure would also reduce increasingly real risks. Single events, for example, can sever interprovincial ties. Recall the 2021 British Columbia flood that almost turned the province into an island separated from the rest of the country. There might also be political benefits. Prime Minister Diefenbaker campaigned quite successfully with Roads to Resources, which planned to expand road infrastructure to boost natural resource exploration and development. Deepening the physical connections between Canada's diverse regions was then, as it would be now, about a transcending sense of national purpose. Where might the money come from? There are plenty of options, including from both public and private sources. From the public, each federal gas tax point is about $600 million, for example. We could massively expand the National Trade Corridors Fund and make it permanent, with a modest gas tax hike. From the private, we could use trade corridors, championed recently by the Senate of Canada, to ease regulatory burdens on private infrastructure proponents. We could also use tolls to leverage private capital. One thing is clear, though. Backing away from new major road projects on ideological grounds points Canada in precisely the wrong direction. That was a commentary by Trevor Toome. He is a professor of economics at the University of Calgary. You can find the full text of his article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Philip Deck, a software entrepreneur. He is writing today on Donald Trump's comments on NATO, where Canada has gaps in its approach to defense, and what we should take away from Trump's comments. During his election campaign against Hillary Clinton, 
it was observed that Donald Trump should be taken seriously, but not literally, while the reverse applied to his opponent. It is still useful advice in assessing Trump's plans for NATO. When Trump says he would encourage others to invade countries that fail to spend enough to defend themselves, the rule likely applies. Concern over Trump's statements has broken out across the West as Trump deploys his usual inflammatory and outrageous rhetoric in questioning whether the U.S. should defend those countries that don't make the commitment to defend themselves. But he also, more astutely, asks why everyone seems to be content to rely on the U.S., who now shoulders about 70% of defense spending for the entire alliance. Of course, Barack Obama's administration used to make the same points, but more diplomatically and privately, so they could be easily ignored. The results spoke for themselves. The design of NATO has some pretty strong central tenets. By combining the forces of countries with similar attitudes towards democracy and human rights, let's leave Turkey aside for simplicity, any adversary faces a united front. And by making an attack on one an attack on all, the deterrent becomes even stronger. But the assumption that seemed obvious at the time was that countries would still be responsible for defending themselves. When NATO was founded in 1949, that seemed like an obvious condition, with even Canada having played a major role in the Second World War. Back then, we had the world's fourth largest air force and third largest navy. Now we use them to shovel snow. The guarantee of mutual defense has caused non-U.S. NATO members to wind down spending in favor of reliance on the U.S., decrement defense spending to fund entitlement programs, turn their defense departments into either industrial development strategies, regional economic distribution strategies, or most recently, a way to advance the woke agenda. All of these objectives detract from the essential objective of what defense needs to deliver, a lethal and cost-effective capability to defend from and deter aggression. The questions that we should be asking are not what percentage of GDP we are spending or how we can justify the little that we do spend, but why a rich country like Canada does not fulfill its basic responsibility to itself and its allies to create a credible defense capability that could respond to the threats that are becoming clearer and clearer every day. With a territory as big as Canada's, the cost to do so may be much higher than 2%, particularly given the military deficit we have created with years of neglect. Why should that be someone else's problem? It's clear that our Prime Minister has little interest in defending the country. It shouldn't be surprising that someone so busy denigrating the achievements of Western culture as oppressive and colonialist would deem them not worth defending. We know he always follows the science, and mainly, it's political science. He knows how to read the polls, and they tell him that Canadians do not want to make the economic sacrifices that it would take to create the capability to defend ourselves. He is not the problem, it's us. All the Canadians who would like to give peace a chance need to take Trotsky seriously when he said, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. The war in Gaza right now is not just about Zionism. It's a fundamental battle between those who believe in Western rights and freedoms, political freedoms, freedom of speech, religious freedom, women's rights, 
minority rights, and those who would like to eliminate them in favor of either religious dogma or authoritarian regimes. It's a battle between Western liberal democracy and Hamas chaos. And to think it will be contained in the Middle East is wishful thinking, as evidenced by the shocking support shown for the latter in Canadian domestic demonstrations. We don't know what a return of the Trump circus to Washington will bring, since unpredictability is one of his core tactics. But the video of Trump excoriating the Germans in front of the entire UN for the reckless dependency they were creating in building a pipeline to buy Russian gas should be suggestive. The German delegation could not contain their laughter. Maybe revisit the video of Trump practically coming over the table in a meeting with Merkel asking her why his country should defend Germany when they sign up for total energy dependency on Russia. What the apoplectic Western politicians and commentators are saying in response to Trump's criticism of NATO is that it would provoke such a crisis that they might have to spend more on their own defense. That is welcome. And they had better figure out how, as U.S. politicians can do political science as well. The voters who support Trump, which may turn out to be a majority of Americans, are tired of paying most of the bill for the protection of the Western world. Two reliable observations about Trump remain. The first is that one of the most frustrating things about Trump is how often he turns out to be right. And the second is that it's too bad someone like him has to be elected to get anything difficult done, but for anyone who cares about NATO and the general protection of Western Enlightenment rights and freedoms, Trump could be our best friend. That was Philip Deck appearing in today's Hub. He is a software entrepreneur and has served as the lead director of the Bank of Canada. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to The Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granofsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the host of Hub Headlines. Thanks for listening.